Our scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew 24, verses 29 to 51. Follow however you choose to do. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say unto you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant, whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And at an hour, he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Thank you, Don. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, we say to you, Come. Come to this broken and marred world and redeem your church, 
restore creation back to what it was originally designed to be, vanquish the enemy, our great enemy, Satan, and conquer sin in this world. Oh, how we long for that to happen. We pray today that you would give us an anticipation, a longing, this holy urgency for that coming day. Create an appetite within us for your coming so that then we could live lives that are watchful and lives that are faithful and that in so doing we would even hasten your return. So Lord, help us apply this passage to our lives today. We pray, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear. Help us to know our spiritual condition today. And in knowing so, then can understand what you are asking us to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This week I had the privilege of attending a funeral for one of our church members, Larry Rose, who died after battling cancer for many years. And as his casket was here open and his children shared, as scriptures were read, as hymns were sung, As the gospel was preached, I found myself um, overcome with a particular thought. It's it's a thought that I often have in the months of January and February, because in February, um, it marks uh, the date of our daughter's death, and this is the time of year I begin replaying the events that were around her passing. And while in that funeral, I had this thought, I hate death. I just hate it. My my feelings reached a crescendo at the end when we were listening to the song In Christ Alone. And this is what that song says. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. What was going on inside of my heart at that moment was this this longing for Christ to take our broken, marred, and sinful world and bring it back to the way that it's supposed to be. I found myself hating sin in my life, in the lives of others, and in our world. And and I found myself just in in the depths of my heart, just with with tears in my eyes, saying, Jesus, would you come? Would you just come and, and, and bring everything back to the way it's supposed to be? Take the sin that's in my heart and the hearts of other people, not only forgive it at the cross, but but render it completely and inalterably over. Come back and take the earth and bring it back to its original design before before sin messed it all up. And, and, and Lord Jesus, would you come and bring everything back to the way it's supposed to be? I found myself looking at our world and my own life and even the people in that room through this lens of sin has really messed things up. That what we're, the funeral is not a normal event. It shouldn't be this way. 
In fact, my heart was longing for what Revelation chapter 21 describes. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I was longing for that day when Christ comes and defeats not only the power of sin, but the reality of death, and then ushers us into His kingdom, and there's no more sin, there's no more suffering, there's no more pain. My heart was longing, Jesus, would you just come? You ever felt like that? A funeral made me long for the completion of my salvation. To be saved not only from the sin within my heart, but to be saved from the very presence of sin in the world. Death, in effect, made me long for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not just so that there would be no more death, but rather so that there would be no more sin in the world that makes our world so broken. I found myself watching the news, reading the newspaper, just seeing life through this lens differently because of this longing for Jesus to come. So, today, we're going to take another step in our journey through this study of Matthew 22-25, and today we're considering some passages that help us answer some important questions about the second coming of Christ. This, this longing for Jesus to return, the questions that then we should ask are, so what will Christ's return be like? How close is it and what should we do? And the reality is if, if you're a, a follower of Jesus, there, there should be this longing in you for Christ to come back, that you know that this world, how, however wonderful and good it is, and the things that we are able to enjoy are, are wonderful gifts from God, but there has to be this constant internal sense within you that, that it's still broken, it, it's not right, it's, it, there's more... And life isn't the way God has designed it to be. And today I think this passage helps us to catch a flavor of how important this return should be and even why. So the first question is this, what will Christ's return be like? There's three things that are we find in um, this little section of Scripture here, found in verses 29 through 30, 31, and it is that His return will be cosmic, it will be public, and it will be redemptive. You see, Jesus in this particular section is describing now in detail what his second return will be like. He's already described for us in verses 4 to 14 how believers should live in his absence. And he's also described an unparalleled season of anguish and hardship in verses 15 to 28. If you remember from last week, to see this passage as a specific thing that will be fulfilled in the lifetime of the disciples, verses 15 to 28, but also as a harbinger of things to come in the great tribulation. So finally now Jesus gets to answer their question that they had asked all the way back in verse 3, which was, what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age? And so Jesus now describes what some of the signs will be. First, he says that it will be cosmic in its scope. Look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven. And then a summary phrase. And the powers of heaven, of the heavens will be shaken. So note this, that Christ's return not only affects human beings, it affects all of creation. Why? 
Because it's not just human beings that are affected by the consequences of sin, but even creation itself is affected by the consequences of sin. In fact, Paul says that creation groans under the weight of sin. That sin is so devastating, and this battlefield between God and Satan is earth, and on this battlefield between God's supremacy and Satan's desire to overthrow him is this presence of sin that makes even creation itself, although beautiful and lovely, but marred. And so... The reality is we live in a really broken world and you need to see life through that lens. That, that, that the world is broken and what the world needs is the transforming work of Christ, both personally, nationally, and globally. And when Christ returns, He will not only redeem people, He will redeem the very creation of the world. He will create a new heaven and a new earth. So get this, when Christ returns and when we enter into this new heaven and new earth, you're going to be living on earth. And you'll have a real body. You'll be physically alive. This body is going to be glorified. I'll be physically alive. We'll be able to see each other and recognize one another. And we'll be able to see Christ in all of His glory. And this existence will be real. It'll be personal. And it'll be eternal. And there will be no more sin no more temptation. You can walk down the street and there's no more sin. There's no, nothing to worry about what you're going to look at, what you're going to see, what you're going to feel. You're going to see people and you're going to love them without any hidden motive or agenda. There's, there's going to be, there's going to be no more teaching in terms of you having to battle sin. No more sermons. Don't say amen. And there'll be, there will be no more struggle with the flesh because it's over. And God will create a new garden. We'll be back to the way it was supposed to be. And therefore, when he returns, the creation portends his coming. It says that the sun will be darkened. The the moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from heaven. That, Like in Genesis 1, when God created the sun, moon, and stars, he said, let them serve as signs to mark the seasons and days and years. So the sun, the moon, and the stars, they mark the change of seasons in the same way that they change because a new season has come, namely the return of Christ. And these great cosmic disturbances are all summarized with this little phrase, the powers of heaven will be shaken. Meaning... Everything you know as a human being is going to shake. It's, it's, going to, it's going to become unstable. That the limitations of human beings and the sovereign power of God are going to be on display. And the result is then you will wake up and realize how finite you are. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, if you have your Bible, turn there. Hebrews 12, 25 gives a great um, cross-reference to this idea of shaking Verse 25 says, it's Hebrews 12, says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice, here it is, shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Verse 27, Hebrews 12. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying there? He's saying... 
That God shakes things, and when He does, He does so to show you that the things around you are unstable, and there are some things that cannot be shaken, and therefore we should be grateful that we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's incredibly stable, and in so doing, we should worship God with reverence and fear because He is a consuming fire. A couple weeks ago, we had an earthquake in Indiana. It's crazy, isn't it? I never, when we bought our insurance for our house, a person said we need to have earthquake insurance. I was like, what? And then a month later, there's an earthquake down in Evansville somewhere down there, and then there's an earthquake up in, in Kokomo, and must be like Indiana's under judgment or something, right? Is that what's going on? Well, the, what happened was um, that particular morning, I was home, and I, it was like 7.30, 7.50, somewhere in there, and I, I closed the front door. And the whole house like shook. And I was like, sweet, you know, I was like, wow, it's like, yeah. And my wife was like, what was that? So I just closed the door. She says, no, no, that was, that was something else. The whole house shook. And she said, I think it was an earthquake. I was like, earthquake? Yeah, whatever. It's like, earthquake? And then we turn on the news, sure enough, she's like, ah, oh, see, earthquake. And it was, it's kind of alarming. It was a, it's a, it's a scary feeling when you're, the very ground on which you're standing is shaking and trembling. And it just reminds you that we are little puny human beings and we build our houses and we put them on the crust of the earth and that so little bit of movement on the crust of the earth can make our houses collapse. And this is a sovereign God who goes, watch this, and then your house goes down. I mean, that, that's a wake-up to re, the reality of both who you are and the brevity of life. And what the writer of Hebrews and what Jesus is saying here is that cosmic signs will demonstrate the limitations of human beings and the sovereign power of a God who controls all of the universe. So it'll be cosmic. Secondly, his coming will be public. Verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And we don't know what this is. This, this could be either his return, it could be the trumpet call, it could be some other kind of sign, something that you'll see in the sky. But, but this sign indicates that Christ is coming and it will be public and it will be obvious. And the text goes on and it says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The point of this is that everyone will see him and the sign of his coming will demonstrate to every person on planet earth that Christianity was in fact the one true religion. And his sign will indicate to the entire globe that Christ has come. And in that moment, the whole world will know that he really is King of kings and Lord of lords. But for a vast number of people on planet earth, the sign of his coming will not be hopeful. It will be incredibly fearful. In fact, it says that they will mourn. And then it says he'll come on clouds. And this is a familiar biblical um, metaphor or motif connected with power and with glory. Think of when Jesus was uh, ascended into heaven. He, he went up into the clouds. Think of tabernacle. And when God's glory came, the clouds surrounded the, the, the tabernacle in the same way that shaking describes the cosmic reality of Christ's return. So here, this notion of coming in clouds is really the type that gives us a picture of what his public coming will be. That his coming will be seen with great power, with great glory, with might, and it will be obvious. It will be apparent. No one will miss the reality of his return. And then I love this, verse 31. Here's the third thing. It will be redemptive. Some of you think that salvation is just simply receiving Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And that's true, 
And in that sense, it's complete. But yet at the same time, there's something that we're yet waiting for. And what we're waiting for is the glorification of the body. We're waiting for this coming moment when Christ comes and returns and redeems the physical world. And so in many cases, the Bible describes our salvation as something that's happened now, but yet we're waiting for it to be fully fulfilled. In verse 31, we see the fulfillment of it. It says, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So what happens is Jesus sends out his angels and he collects all of his believers. He sends out this, this, the angels with this trumpet sound, which was often uh, a sound given for a call to worship or someone in battle or a really important announcement. And, and what happens in this moment is that God takes all of his children from all over the planet and brings them into the final culmination or consummation, if you will, of their redemption. And in so doing, what he does is he then completes their salvation. He brings into full reality this hope that those who know Christ as their Savior have. That Jesus has not only forgiven us of our sins now, but one day He's going to return and restore the world that is broken and our lives that are broken. And He will take all of this mess and He will fix it and bring it back to the way that God originally intended for it to be. And we long for that day to come. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, and notice how unshakable these things are, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Why is that so important? Because if you live in a world that's broken and it's continually shaken by the effects of sin, you need to know that your real stuff that you really value isn't here. It's there. And you also need to know that no matter what happens to you or what the devil throws at you or what your flesh tempts you to do, that in the end of the day, your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's great news for a world that's lost its way. Who, verse 5, the promise in 1 Peter 3 is not only about your inheritance, but also about your, your belief, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So the preserving influence of your life is not just you. It's God who's sustaining you. And then one day, when this salvation is fully revealed... It'll all be made complete. And Peter then says, verse 13, this is really important because this is what Jesus is trying to drive home. This is what Peter, when he's talking about the second coming of Christ, this is the message he's trying to bring. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice that the focus is, if this is the way that things are, and this is the way they're going to be, then your mindset needs to be different. He links the second coming of Christ with this urgency of spiritual watchfulness. Again, there's that theme. Watchfulness. Be awake. Stay alert. Wake up. See the reality. So what's it going to be like? The the return of Jesus Christ is going to be a spectacular event that will demonstrate the sovereign plan of God powered by the resurrection of Christ. It It will demonstrate this coming judgment that is yet to be expected and it will also result in the final redemptive rescue of 
God's followers who have named the name of Jesus Christ. He will pull us out of Egypt again. It will be a spectacular, global, but also frightening for some, hopeful for others. And your perspective on the second coming will entirely depend on who Jesus is to you today. The question is, when he comes, will you be his child or will you be his enemy? There's no, like, B-team you're either on the team or you're off. There, there's no, there's no warm-ups. It, this is it. This is, this is you either on or you're not. You're either in or you're out. So then the next question is, okay, so how close is it? Verses uh, 32 to 41 point back to the environment that we had mentioned before, beginning in verse 4 all the way through verse 28. Jesus is telling them about the signs of his coming, and what he says here is that his coming is closer than what you think. And, and this is always the case of how Jesus presents his coming, that it's, that it's closer than what people on earth will think. Verse 32, Jesus uses the parable of a fig tree to encourage his disciples to anticipate his coming. He says a fig tree, like any other tree, would get buds in the spring and would anticipate that the summer months are just around the corner. It's sort of like those pear trees, I think is what they are. A lot of developments have them, and they're the first tree to bloom in the spring. They get beautiful flowers. And when you see that tree, I mean, even if there's snow on the ground or if it gets kind of cold, you know spring is just around the corner. And nothing like sub-zero temperatures to remind you that there are pear trees and that day is coming, and oh, how soon we hope it comes. In the same way, Jesus pictures the environments and the events of what he talked about before, the, the sufferings, the betrayals, the wars, the earthquakes, the abomination, desolation, all these things indicate the nearness of his return. So I think that ushers in, not only in the lifetime of the disciples, but also in our lifetime, a continual anticipation that Jesus could come today. Verse 33 states it pretty clearly, when you see all these things, know that he is near at the very gates. Then the disciples in verse 34 are encouraged that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What's he talking about there? Well, I think what he's referring to is not the destruction of Jerusalem alone, nor <clears throat> excuse me, future events that are going to be happening, but rather he's referring to the events that are going to happen during the, the lifetime of the disciples that become a type, a figure, if you will, of what will happen for the rest of all disciples' lives all throughout their entire generation. Some see generation as just the nation of Israel. I see this as a statement that, look, this is going to happen in your, this stuff's going to happen in your lifetime, not as second coming. Um, this, this kind of suffering, this kind of environment, and therefore you ought to always be on a footing anticipating my return. So in that respect, Christ's return is incredibly imminent, which means he could return at any time. Therefore, Jesus says they should be ready and maintain this confident hope and readiness that he could return. In fact, he even says this, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away. So what he's saying here is this, I've told you this is going to happen, and this, this is guaranteed by my word, and it's going to take place. The second thing Jesus says is it's closer than they will think. The reality is, is that many of them um, many disciples would be caught off guard because the problem is that 
while some will predict that he will come at a particular time, more often than not, the other lot that people fall into is just living their everyday life, not cognizant of the fact that their life is hanging on a whisper, not only of their mortality, but also of Christ's return. That this there's this constant state of readiness that Jesus calls his disciples to embrace. In fact, verse 36, he says that the return of Christ is a mystery even in heaven. He says, concerning the day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. In other words, the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of Jesus, is determined by the will of the Father. The Father determines its timing. And what he's calling them to realize here is that you could live your life as if this date, although not known, except by the Father, is never going to happen. And that's why he talks about the days of Noah. Look at verse 37. As the days, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what was it about the days of Noah? Remember that? It was wickedness all around. Every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. And, and judgment was coming, and it was sure. And, and, and Noah and his family were the only ones who were prepared. Verse 38, For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, they're just going about their everyday life, and they're thinking, man, life is great. We're eating, we're drinking, we're giving our kids away in marriage, we grew up, we have these careers, and all of a sudden, bam, he comes, and, and, and they were completely unaware. And, and that's what the Son of Man, what his return is going to be like. And then Jesus takes that, that Noah imagery, and then he makes it more um, personal and, and more practical about normal, everyday living. He gives it a contemporary feel in verse 40. It says, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. So the idea is that they're, they're walking and all of a sudden, boom, one's gone. And the other one's standing there. And two women will be grinding at the mill. Okay, so they're, they're, they're doing their stuff. And then one will be taken and, and one will be left. This, this reminds me, some of you who grew up in church remember, remember this song that years ago? Two men walking up a hill, one man gone, the other's left standing still. I wish we'd what? All been ready. How many remember that song? How many have no idea what I'm singing? Okay. All right. So anyways, there was a song that went through the church, and you're like, what? So you have no idea. It's, it's a golden oldie, so I just dated myself a little bit. And um, anyway, so, but it's a, it's a song that, that, that someone wrote, and apparently there's a new rendition of it. I guess DC Talk did something. I don't know what it's like. Like, I wish we'd all been. I don't know what that is, so. I, I can't sing that or rap, so, but anyways... That's, we won't go there. So there's a, uh, this song talks about that two men are walking up a hill, one man's gone, the other's left standing still, and the song says, I wish we'd all been ready. It has this kind of ominous song and, and rhythm to it, and it's this call that says, look, you, you need to be, you need to be ready. What Jesus is trying to say here is that there's this weight and urgency of the moment and they should be warned about going through life too casually without thinking about what could happen. So here's the deal. So go home today and enjoy your lunch and enjoy the football games and have a great time with your family. Do your small group thing tonight and go to work on Monday and, and earn money and send your kids off to college and, and have a great experience on planet Earth. But don't you ever forget that this is not really living. 
And don't you ever forget when you look at the world and everything that's that, that, that's going on and you look, watch the news and you see things that are just so messed up, you know why they're messed up. And there ought to be this longing in your heart to say, oh God, would you come and just fix this thing and, and take sin out of the world and, and be careful that your heart doesn't get too attached to the environment of the world because it's a broken world. And every Lord's Day, the reason why you should come and sing and pray and, and hear the word is because you need to be reminded that this is the weird, this, this is the realm that you really live in. This is the essence of what God has designed. And to be careful that our hearts don't put too strong of roots down in our broken and marred world and culture. His coming is closer than they think and he wants them to be alert. He, he wants to shock them into being awake. He wants to get their attention. And help them see that, look, I could come back like right now. And you become too passive. This uh, Christmas Eve, every Christmas Eve we have kind of a family tradition where we have this kind of fun um, meal with um, hors d'oeuvres and things of that sort. And uh, one of the things that we do is we have um, artichokes. And we, my wife boils them in vinegar and then... We pull them out and dip them in butter. It's just, it's just, it's just a fun delicacy that we enjoy. Well, this year we went out to dinner, and um, while we were gone, we forgot to turn the artichokes off. And so we had a great time. We were gone for a couple hours, and uh, we pulled in the garage, and uh, my boys were first in, and they stopped like, like an intruder was in the house. And smoke began billowing into our garage. And it smelled like there were like 60 guys in our living room smoking cigars. That's what it smelled like. Okay? And you, walk, and you walked in, and there was, there was smoke all over the place. And, uh, and those artichokes, the, the vinegar had boiled down. There's this black thing at the bottom. And, and we, were, we were basting um, uh, artichokes, and the smoke was all over the house. And I, I took everything outside and got the house aired out. It took like three days. For it did, we didn't invite anybody over for three days. It was like, hey, you're smoking cigars in our house, you know. So, um, and it just, it was a, we went to bed that night. It was just a reminder you know, bad stuff can happen really, really fast. And you just, you're having a good time. You don't even realize that had that gone on for a little while longer, that, that could have been a really serious issue. And it's just amazing how you just go through life and you don't think bad things are going to happen or something's going to take place in the future. You don't anticipate that. And, and now there's a little bit more sense that when we leave, be sure all the things are off on the stove. And what Jesus is calling here is for an awareness, a, a, a wake-up call, if you will, to the reality of his coming judgment and his glorious return. So then that leaves us with this question. So then what should we do? Verse 42 says this, Therefore, therefore, stay awake. You do not know what day your Lord is coming. So he he calls them out to realize that the first thing they need to, to do is to be watchful. This is the same thing that he'll say to his disciples when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26 and he prays. He's saying, look, wake up, be, be alert. But in this context, it means spiritual vigilance. It means to be pulled out of a, a spiritual slumber or sleepiness. I was thinking about sleepiness this morning. Sleepiness is you're kind of in one world but not in another, right? You ever... 
I'm sure you've had that before, where you, you wake up, but you're sleepy all day, so it feels like you're just dragging all day long, like you should be back in bed, but you're not, you wish you were, and everybody else wishes you were, and you're just kind of kind of making your way, and you're walking around going, oh, I'm so tired, right? You're so tired. And so you're kind of in one world, but you're in the other at the same time, and there's just this, this I should be either awake, or I should be asleep, but I can't be, sl- sleepiness is just killing me. I mean, some of you, that's your experience on, on Sundays, isn't it? I mean, how many of you have, how many of you have ever fallen asleep in church? Let me see your hands. Now, realize I see you when you fall asleep in church, so don't, don't lie. So, a, a, a roommate of mine in college, he had this thing just before he would fall asleep. Some of you probably twitch just before you fall asleep. Some of you have that. Well, he was a tenor, is a great singer, but he had this crazy thing that just before he'd fall asleep, he'd do this. Huh? And, and then he'd be out like a light. So I'd, I'd be laying in bed, and I hear him. All of a sudden, he goes, huh? And I was like, ah, oh, there he goes. Night-night. Night-night. Well, it was all fun and games. It was great until one particular chapel service when um, he had a really, really hard night studying. And uh, he was in that half-in, half-out world where he was trying to listen to the sermon but wasn't really working. And he was, had his arms crossed like this. And, and the speaker got really quiet and really intimate and really personal, just like this. And all of a sudden, at the end of the pew, I hear, huh, like that. <laughs> and it was loud enough that a bunch of people turned and looked, and they all knew what had happened. And yet he had the presence of mind to look at me and go, that was a really good point, wasn't it? So, <laughs> so being in a period of sleepiness and slumber, what, what Jesus is calling you to do is don't, look, don't be stuck between these two worlds of kind of spiritually on, kind of spiritually not, kind of in this discipleship thing, but you're so like tied to the sense of the world. Listen to what Revelation 3 says. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. And then, to make the point even clearer, Jesus uses an illustration about what would happen if he knew a thief was going to come into your house. Verse 43, he says, if the master knows that the thief is going to come, he would, quote, have stayed up awake and would not let his house be broken in. In other words, the concern about the imminent return of this thief would create other actions on the part of the master. He would stay awake. And so what Jesus says is, live with this constant anticipation of my return. Be spiritually watchful. Realize that you're here on earth with an anticipation of, oh, Jesus, would you come? And one of my aims today is to awaken within you this yearning for Jesus to come. That you'd leave today and go, oh, come, Lord Jesus. This world and everything that I have is wonderful and awesome, but it pales in comparison to what we need you to do. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 44, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. So what is spiritual watchfulness? Spiritual watchfulness is not just to have your eye on the sky. It is to have an eye on your heart. It means that you watch for your own soul. It means reading your Bible and reading the newspaper with a longing for Christ to come, not only to, so you, so that you can see Christ fix the mess that is in the world, but also so you can worship the one who fixed up the mess in your heart. Spiritual watchfulness means gratitude and also gravity with considering what Christ has done. That's why those of you who are here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you don't get any of this. You're like, what? 
why are you looking forward for why are you looking forward to judgment? Why are you looking forward for Christ to come? The reason is, here's why. Here's why we long for judgment. Because we know on judgment day, God will say to us, forgiven. And, and our, our hope and our, our, the, the blessed assurance that we have in Christ will be made clear and evident and real. So we long for judgment to come because we know on that day we'll be declared righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of the immeasurable actions of Christ on the cross. And the final thing he calls for is faithfulness. This, this watchfulness should create an element of daily faithfulness. He talks about two servants. Verse 45 through 51, Who then is the faithful servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So the master shows up when he least expects it, and he finds a servant doing what that servant's supposed to be doing, and he therefore is honored. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Verse 48, there's another kind of servant though. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on the day that he does not expect him and an hour that he doesn't know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's what happens. This, this, this wicked servant starts to think that because the master's gone, he starts to act like he's the master. He starts to act like he can do whatever he wants with his servants and he can live however he wants in terms of his lasciviousness or his abusiveness. And then when he least expects it, he's busted. Then the master shows up and there's a tone of judgment, isn't there? He, he cuts him in pieces, he puts him with the hypocrites, and in that day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's going on here? The overwhelming tone of this passage indicates that this wicked servant who was guilty of a lack of watchfulness and a lack of faithfulness, is excluded from the kingdom. These actions in and of themselves don't exclude him. Rather, these actions reveal that he's not a true servant of the master. He lives his life as if he's the master, like he's in control. He forgets that he's a servant and he serves his master. And essentially, to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus means that you know you're longing for Christ to return, and therefore, in the interim, you want to live your life in a way that's fitting with the glorious grace that God has imparted through you, to you through Jesus Christ. And therefore, watchfulness and faithfulness are not add-ons to the life of the disciple. They are central to it. This means, friends, that we need to view the return of Christ with a sense of holy urgency. To stop playing around with things that we shouldn't be playing around with. To start dabbling in things that we shouldn't dabble in, as if there's no judgment to come. Or start putting off decisions as it relates to your care of your own spiritual soul. Some of you are here today, and you've never really dealt with the reality of what it means to be a sinner, and you think this is all a fairy tale. And one day you're going to see this is not, and it will be serious, serious beyond any measure. So Jesus used an illustration of two men on a field, two women at a grindstone. I saw something recently that I think illustrates this in our own contemporary culture. I want you to watch this. Jesus Christ is coming back for his church. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know the hour your Lord is coming. I want you to know, church, that Jesus Christ could come this month. Or he might come next week. Or he could even come...
Now that I have your attention, (laughs) hear me. Are you ready? The true test of character is who you are when no one is looking. But the true test of discipleship is how you live while the master is away. Jesus will return in power and in glory, and one day death will be no more, and until then our calling is to be watchful and faithful because his return is closer than we think. For some of you, that video is scary because you know if that happened right now, you'd be one of those folks looking around going, oh my word. So Peter says this about how you think about it. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that's us, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the the day of eternity. Amen. Jesus calls us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Himself. Lord Jesus, would you help us to do just that? To realize the reality of what it means to live in a broken world. To long for your return. To not take the elements and the gifts and the beauty of what we enjoy in this life so seriously that they become idols. And at the same time, Lord Jesus, to realize that you've given us every good thing to enjoy on the earth so that we can glorify and honor you. God, would you... Would you apply in our hearts this concept of watchfulness and faithfulness today? Would you call us to to realize that your coming back, Lord Jesus, is a real event to be anticipated in the future? And Lord, for those today who don't know you and who today know that if you return, they would be in serious jeopardy. I pray that today they might be pushed forward by your Spirit into turning from their sin and turning to you, and in so doing might receive you as Savior and Lord and look for the coming day of their redemption. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you do this for their good and for your glory? And for the rest of us who are called to be faithful, help us not to get too tied to all the stuff that doesn't really matter, but help us instead to use it for your glory and for your honor. And to you, Be glory both now and to the day of eternity, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.